Hey guys, good morning. Cool, that was good. Uh, how are we today? We doing okay? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Alright. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning and thank you for my church, Calvary. I thank you for uh, all of the people that, have, that are here today. I pray that the Spirit of God would be our teacher. Lord, that we would communicate the truth in love. And Lord, that we'd speak it to one another in love. And Lord, I pray for today, that today would be a time of personal reflection to see what we are offering to the Lord in our lives. Lord, I pray for the deepest recesses of our mind and our hearts and the vaults of our mistakes. And Lord, I pray that we would bring those to you, uh, to the Lord, and we could find forgiveness in our time of need. And be with this morning. We lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. My name is Dwight Walter. I'm one of the elders here at Calvary. We'll be reading this morning from Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. If you'd like to follow along, there's one in the pew there or on your phone or wherever you've got it. And beginning in Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold, or cooked food or wine, oil or any other other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, No. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these with the latter, become unclean. And the priest answered, it will become unclean. Then Haggai said, so it is this with this people. And so in the nation before me, declares the Lord, and so every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. But now do consider this, do consider from this day onward. Before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time, when one comes to a grain heap of twenty measures, there would be only ten. And when one come to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there would only be twenty. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting, wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward... From the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn? Even include the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree. It has not borne fruit, yet from this day on, I will bless you. May God bless the reading of his word. Hey, good morning, friends. Um, I've already had... People come up to me and say, you know, what in the world is this passage uh, talking about? So it's kind of complex. We'll get into it here in just a few minutes. But I just want to say good morning to you all. I'm Aaron Brass. I'm the pastor here at Calvary. If you have any questions, feel free to see me after the service today. Uh, but today in Haggai chapter 2, what I want to talk to you about is fulfilling God's mission. Fulfilling God's mission. Doing the right thing the right way. Doing the right thing the right way. 
If you've been here for any length of time, then you know that this might be the, this is the fifth week in our series in the Minor Prophets. We spent two weeks in the book of Obadiah, the shortest book in the Old Testament, a book that talks about the issue of pride. We kind of spent two weeks un, unpacking that, and today we're in our third week in the book of Haggai, and today I want to talk to you about fulfilling God's mission, doing the right thing the right way. How many of you have ever done the right thing the wrong way? All right. I'll give you some examples. How many of you have ever tried to screw in a Phillips head screw with a flathead screwdriver? Tracking with me on that one? How many of you ever did the right thing by wearing a suit to a funeral or a wedding, but you had a clip-on tie? Okay. All right. No one's going to admit that one. Okay. We all know who you are. Um... How many of you have ever uh, done the right thing with spending time with your kids, but and with a board game, and then but you did the wrong thing by bending the rules just a little bit in your favor? Yeah, uh, my wife calls that cheating, but I don't. Um, it's just bending the rules. It's fine. It's what they're there for. They're meant to be broken. Um, that's what I say. But. You know, when I was thinking about this week, as far as the right thing done the wrong way, I, I was like, okay, what, are, what arenas, what areas of life do we most see this taking place? Well, I came up with two, the right thing done the wrong way, two areas that we see it in. Number one, we see it in politics. I'm not getting into that this morning. Okay. Um, and number two is sports. Sports. I had a Little League ball coach that said, the point of Little League baseball is to have fun. It's not, right? No. What's the point of sports? It is to what? Win. That's the whole idea. That is the right thing, that you compete to win. You play tennis to rub your victory in your child's nose, okay? You play basketball so you can swat their shot. Okay, this is, this is my parenting skills right here, you know, on full display. But we, we see all the time the right thing done the, the wrong way, especially in the area of sports. And this got me thinking about my childhood. Uh, There was this team in Little League World Series. The Little League World Series is a a baseball tournament for 11-year-olds and down. So when I was a kid, I'm about a teenager at this particular time, there was this team from New York City that was just setting the world on fire. And uh, the reason they were setting the world on fire is because they had one particular pitcher. This particular pitcher was like a grown man among boys. All right, he was lighting the world on fire. He had a 76-mile-an-hour fastball, this 11-year-old, from 45 feet away. Those poor 11-year-old boys saw that flying at their face. Okay, I mean, that ball, if you put it to 60 feet, would be 102 miles per hour, the equivalent. This kid who took his team from New York City all the way to the Little League World Series, the reason they were there is because of this one pitcher. This one pitcher threw a no-hitter in order to get his team to the World Series, In the World Series himself, this pitcher threw a perfect game. The first time since 1979 it has been thrown in the Little World Series. This pitcher struck out 62 of 72 batters. They were the feel-good story of the 2001 Little League World Series, and they were so popular. In fact, the New York Yankees invited them to the ball game. The The mayor of the city of New York gave them keys to the city, And this picture was like a grown man throwing to 11-year-old boys. Well, he was. Um, Come to find out that this 11-year-old boy who was a pitcher was not 11. He was actually 14. 
You had a 14 year old guy throwing to 11 year old boys, and no wonder they did so well. That's an example of doing the right thing the wrong way. The right thing in sports is to win. At all costs, right? Have you ever looked, talked to a professional athlete? In their view, it is to win at all costs, but not in the wrong way. You know, we as Christians have the same tendency to do the right thing the wrong way. We desire to live on mission for God. We desire to follow him into full-time ministry. We desire to raise our children in the right way. We desire to serve in a ministry. We desire to make a difference for the kingdom of God. We desire to teach the word accurately, but we often do it in the wrong way. What is the one trait? What is the one thing a Christian must have in order to fulfill God's mission? A Christian must have more than smarts, clearly. Um, A Christian must have more than good looks, must have more than opportunity, must have more than just a clear calling. In order to fulfill God's mission for your life, you must have one thing. But this thing in your life, this trait is often not seen by other people. It's tucked away in the vaults of your mind and in your heart. But it is absolutely critical in order to truly fulfill God's mission for your life. What is that trait? What is that one thing you must have? If you have your Bible, I'm hearing it. If you have your Bible, go to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2 is where we are going to be today. And we're going to go from verses 10 through 19. And we will see... This trait on full display in the people of Israel. And this passage today is one of the reasons why people have already said to me, uh, what are we even going to talk about today? Is because it's pretty difficult to interpret. As a matter of fact, this is one of the more difficult passages that I have ever interpreted in any past, any book, period. Uh, because this passage has a lot going on. It, it talks about, it has a parable, has different metaphors. But if you think about the passage, just to help you, us kind of understand what we're talking about today, verses 11 through 17, or excuse me, verses 10 through 17 has bad news, and verses 18 and 19 has good news. So we see the bad news to the nation of Israel in verses 10 through 17, and then we have the good news given to the nation of Israel in verses 18 and 19. So if you have your Bible, look at it with me. We're going to kind of quickly set the stage for our discussion this morning. And if you, just to kind of help us remember where we are. Now, let me just answer the question, you know, why do I do review every single Sunday morning? It's not, you know, for a variety of reasons, really just three. Uh, Number one, the reason I do review is repetition is what? Theological glue, all right? It helps it stick what we've been talking about. Number two, the reason I do review is because context is the lens to correct interpretation And then number three is, in case you missed a week, in case you haven't been here since the beginning of Haggai, you can kind of catch up with us and understand exactly where we are. If you have your notes, the book of Haggai can be described in one word. That one word is mission. That God has given the nation of Israel and a man named Zerubbabel and a man named Joshua, he's given them a mission. And what is that mission? It is to, what, rebuild the temple. It is to rebuild the temple that Solomon had in the city of, city of David in the city of Jerusalem. And kind of give you an idea of where we've been to this point is I see that there are seven principles, I can't count, seven principles in the book of Haggai that help us understand what it means or what it takes 
to accomplish God's mission, what God has asked us to do, what are the seven principles that we see in the book of Haggai? Well, the first three have to do with finding God's mission. How do we find God's mission? We see this in the book of Haggai, Haggai chapter 1. Well, the first most basic understanding in order to truly find God's mission is we first have to listen. I mean, like my kids, in order for them to obey me, they have to first listen to what I'm saying, which is a big problem. Any parents of little kids in the room understand that. So number one, to find God's mission, we must listen for the mission. We saw this in chapter 1, verse 3, and chapter 1, verse 7. God tells Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people of Israel to then build a temple. So first, you must listen to the mission. How does God speak to us? Through circumstances, through his word, through his spirit, and through other people. So then principle number two is to reprioritize our life. If God is calling us to do something, something's got to go. You know, we fill, you you spend, you do something in the 24 hours you have in a day, right? You You do something. I'm not sure what it is. The phone will tell you if you watch your phone all the time. But in order to follow God, in order to complete his mission, we must first then reprioritize our life. Get our life behind what he's asked us to do. And then principle number three is to look for God's supply. As it says in eight, go up to the mountain. There's wood up there in order for you to complete the temple. So that was week number one in the book of Haggai. That was Haggai chapter one. And then we talked about in order to accomplish God's mission, you first must find it through these three principles, but then you also must follow God's mission. What were the two principles we saw in order to follow God's mission? Number one, that when we follow God, we should expect opposition. You should expect opposition. You should expect things not to go completely smooth. I, had a, I was talking to uh, somebody last night, and I brought up this point. And they're like, yeah, when you follow God, just expect everything to completely fall apart. <laughs> it's like, well, um, you are in the midst of it, I see. Um, so we should expect opposition from the enemy and from natural men, as we saw in the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 1, verses six, chapters 1 through 6. We saw the opposition that Zerubbabel faced. And then principle number 5 is to, when the Lord asks you to do something, when he calls you to lead a ministry, when he calls you to go to full-time ministry, when he calls you to go to seminary, when he calls you to be a father or a husband, when he calls you to any sort of mission he has for you, you must be courageous. Amen? That is, it is terrifying sometimes following the Lord. Amen? Sometimes it's just you don't know how it's going to work out. Lord, who am I going to serve? Lord, how am I going to pay for it? Lord, where am I going to go? Where am I going to live? What does it say in chapter 2? It says, to Zerubbabel, take courage. To Joshua, take courage. To the people of Israel, take courage. Why? Because Yahweh Sabaoth is with them. The Lord of hosts is with them. And then today in Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, we see principle number 6 in order to fulfill God's mission. So if you have your text, that's kind of the setting of the stage, kind of where we've been And Haggai chapter 2, verse 10, that's where we're going to pick up with the third oracle, the third prophecy in this book. It's time stamped. Notice the time stamp. When did this happen? When was this prophecy given? That's one of the things that makes this minor prophet unique. It has four different oracles, four different prophecies, all specifically time stamped. On the 24th month of the, excuse me, on the 24th of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, The word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying... Now, what's the question? When in the world is that? When is the 24th of the ninth month? 
We know from Persian calendars, from you know, Jewish calendars and all this kind of stuff, that the second year of Darius was 520 B.C. Okay, that's 2,500 years ago when this took place. The 24th of the ninth month, we would think of that as September 24th. It's probably more likely December 24th. Okay? So wait a second. What's going on in, in the nation of Israel on December 24th? What, okay, so what's it, what's it like in Huntsville, Alabama? Just kind of FYI, Israel and Huntsville are pretty close to the same latitude. What's December 24th like in Huntsville, Alabama? It's cold, right? It's cold. Does anything grow in the December? Say no. Not really. The weeds in my backyard do. But anyways, the 24th of the ninth month, why is that important? What's already happened? The harvest. The harvest has already occurred. They've already taken all of their crops, their wine, as we saw in this passage. The grain has already been harvested. They know exactly what they have to live on for the rest of the wintertime. You track with me? So it's December 24th. And then if you notice here earlier in chapter 1, they began to build the temple in the sixth month. So in September 1st of 520 B.C., Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people of Israel began to heed the calling and the mission of God to begin to rebuild the temple. So where are they in the point of building the temple? Here we would pick up, it's December 24th. We assume that they have the foundation, well we know they do. They have the framing in mind. They probably are starting to put stones down on the temple, which we will see in our passage today. But what I see in our passage is it talks about fulfilling God's mission, doing the right thing the right way. There is one thing going on in the nation of Israel. They have the right thing in mind to rebuild the temple. That is a mission and a calling of God. But there's something going on in the people. Notice verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, ask now the priest for ruling. If a man, this is, this is the parable, this is confusing, so hang in there with me. You just had to break it down. If a man, this is the parable in the passage, if a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold, or cooked food, or wine, or oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest says, of course, no. Then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become holy? Now, what in the world is he talking about? And the priest answered, it will become holy. Okay. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. And the priest said, it will become unclean. So there you go. I've got too many things going on in my brain. Thank you for telling me that. You can talk to me anytime you want, by the way. Um, So what's going on in the parable? You have something holy and you have something unclean. You have something holy and something unholy. Something holy cannot make something else holy, but something unholy or unclean can make something unholy unholy. What? Holy, holy, whatever. It is, put it in an analogy. It is impossible for clean water to clean dirty water, but it is possible for dirty water to ruin clean water. So what's he getting at? What's the holy meat and what's the unholy or the corpse or the unclean thing? Notice in your text, verse 14. So then Haggai said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. What in the world? What is holy? What is holy is the temple. 
And what is unholy or unclean are the lives of the people of Israel. That's the, the, the answer to the riddle. That is the answer to the parable. That is holy is the temple, and that which is unholy are the lives of the Israelites. The unholy lives of the Israelites are contaminating the holiness of the temple. So what is God getting at? He's getting at this. A holy calling requires holy living. A holy calling requires holy living. Following God, fulfilling his mission. If God has come to you and he's asked you to do something, to take a job, to to become a parent, to lead a ministry, to make disciples, to start discipling your children, start discipling somebody here in the church, start serving, start getting plugged into a grow group, whatever it is. If God is calling you to a mission, you have to be yourself holy, clean, without sin, without tarnishment. That is what he's saying. So is this people. God is asking the people of Israel to live holy lives because they are building a holy place. Friends, listen. If you want to follow God, if you want to make a difference for the kingdom of God, if you want to fulfill his mission, if you want to accomplish what God has called you to do, if God is calling you into full-time ministry or to serve or to start something new, you must be yourself holy. Without sin, without tarnishment. Holiness is required of all who claim the cross. Holiness is required for you to fully do the will of God. Why do I say that? First Peter chapter 1. It's one of, one of my favorite books in the New Testament. That's what he talks about. He's talking to Christians. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. Verse 14 of chapter 1, So then you must live as God's obedient children. Do not slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scripture says, you must be holy because I, the Lord God, am holy. In order to fulfill God's mission for your life, you must be yourself holy. A holy calling requires holy living. Let me speak. When you follow God, when God, example for me, and I gave this example a couple weeks ago, when God told me I, wanted, I should go into full-time ministry, and he called me, and he told me to go to Dallas Theological Seminary, I ran as quick as I could to Dallas Seminary because I wanted to get away from my job here in town, okay? But I had a lot of questions. I said, Lord, how am I going to pay for $75,000 worth of tuition? How am I gonna, where am I going to live? Where am I going to work? What am I going to do? All of these questions. When we follow God, what is always the first thing we worry about? We worry about the calling. What, what, what am I going to do? What am I going to go? Who's going to be with me? Where? And we focus so much on the calling that we forsake our own personal holiness. Uh, I listened to a sermon recently um, on Psalm 32. And then this preacher talked about the importance of holiness. And this preacher made an observation 
that he'll see guys from his church, he'll send them out, he'll send these people to seminary, and they'll go out into full-time ministry, and then after a couple of years of them being a full-time ministry, he'll find that they are selling term life insurance. And what he's found in his life is the vast majority of the reason why they end up that way is because of a lack of holiness in their life. There's sin bubbling up in the vaults of their minds and hearts that they haven't actually dealt with. To accomplish God's mission, you must have more than a plan or task, but you must be clean. Principle number six is this. In order to fulfill God's mission, you must be yourself holy. He calls out the people of Israel. He says to them, you have unclean hands. The holy meat can't make you holy, but you can tarnish that which is holy. They're, they have this job of building the temple, but their lives are full of sin and full of tarnishment. You know, I, I was this week I was saying, okay, what are all of the things that God holds against the nation of Israel that tarnish their nation and causes punishment? What were the sins of the people? I just listed a few. Impure sacrifices, which we'll see in Malachi. Worshiping other gods. Complaining over God's provision. Remember that in the book of Numbers and Exodus while they're in the desert. It's why God sent quail. Rebelling against ordained authority. Not obeying God's law. The secret sin of adultery and lust. David and Bathsheba. You see the sin of covetousness. You see, prioritizing yourself over God, bowing the knee to other gods. These are the sins that God holds against the nation of Israel in the Old Testament that he punishes them for. In order to accomplish God's mission, we must be clean. We must be pure. We must be mindful of the sin we have in our lives. Would you guys agree with that? Track it with me? But then notice verse 15. He's trying to get their attention. So you have the parable, and then you have God's sign or consequences for their lack of holy living. Notice verse 15. But now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. So where are they in the building project? They have the framing up, and now they're starting to put stone on the foundation. Before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, verse 16, from that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures... There would be only 10, and when one came to the vine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. I smote you, and every work of your hands with blasting wind, with mildew, with hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Notice the signs of the consequences of their lack of purity. The heap of wheat they thought would be 20 is 10. The wine they expected, instead of 50, it's 20. And then there is a blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Why is God doing this? He expects them to have clean lives. But then why is he sending to them the, the mildew, the hail, the blasting wind? It's at the end of verse, six, verse 17. And yet you did not come back to me. He's trying to get their attention. Let me just talk to parents of young kids in the room. Um, maybe I, that's a good illustration of everything in the Bible because that's my life. As you know, I have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old. Uh, they destroy everything I have. It's great. There's lots of drawing all over my walls and all of my house, and no matter how much I repaint them. Okay. Um, parents of young kids in the room, what is the kryptonite of your child?
How many of you don't have to raise your hand? How many of your kids are addicted to some kind of television, video game, iPad, phone, computer? What do you, why would you ever go to that iPad and take it away from them? Why would you ever do that? In their mind, you shouldn't ever do that. But why, why do you do that? You're what? You're getting their attention. Because when they're doing this, they're not listening to you. That's the way I see verses 15 through 17. God is trying to get the attention of the nation of Israel. And he's been trying to get their attention for some time. Because the harvest is over with. It's December 24th. Nothing is growing. Okay? And that the August, September, October is where they would have the harvest. He's been trying to get their attention as they're building the temple by sending a blasting wind, by sending mildew, by sending hail. He's trying to get them to wake up to the, the uncleanliness of their hands, of their lives. A holy calling requires holy living. God struck the harvest to get them to wake up saying to them, do you remember the harvest? It wasn't as great as you thought it would be. I wish you would see it before I have to come down and, and kick you with a boot in the rear end to get you to wake up and to see the sin that is in your life. Um, I think sometimes as Christians, we care more for the mission of God than we do for our own purity and our own holiness. There is sin in all of our lives, amen, especially the preacher up here. I am far from perfect. If you think I'm perfect, just just go talk to my wife. She'll pop that balloon real quick. Um, actually, don't do that. Okay. Um, we all have impurity in our life. We all have the secret struggles, the struggles with greed or envy or jealousy or covetousness or lust, the sins of you know, not loving our brother as ourself, the sins of valuing our preference over the truth, the sin of gossiping, biting and devouring one another, the sin of relational dysfunction, being self-willed. There's a host of different sins we have in our life. But a holy calling requires holy living. I've known many, many people in my life that have started out following the will of God, but then they become derailed because of sin that they hid in secret in the vaults of their mind that no one else saw, and that eventually came, the chickens came home to roost. Covenant blessing requires covenant faithfulness. Covenant blessing requires covenant faithfulness. If God has assigned you to do something, he expects you in return to live a life of purity. This is in his book, uh, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. I just took an excerpt from there. He says this, Life is a constant series of choices. From the time we arise in the morning until we go to bed at night, many of these choices have moral consequences. The pursuit of holiness involves a constant series of such choices. We choose in every situation which direction we will go, towards sin or towards holiness. Sin tends to cloud our reason, to dull our conscience, stimulate our sinful desires, and weaken our wills. Because of this, each sin we commit reinforces the habit of sinning and makes it easier to give in to that temptation the next time we encounter it. On the other hand, making right choices tends to strengthen our resolve against sin. That's why right choices are so important. I've known many, many people that have a vision 
for the calling of God upon their life. And I could spend a whole sermon just giving story after story of all the people that have been derailed by their own lack of holiness. I'll give you one. I have a friend of mine who got his calling to go into full-time ministry later in life, probably his mid-30s. And so God called him, right? And this guy reprioritized his pocketbook to follow the Lord, to go to seminary. He, he looked for God's supply. He had a full-time job. He followed the Lord. He did everything he was supposed to. He was courageous. He faced opposition. He followed the Lord. And he spent like 10 years going to seminary because he was working full-time. And, uh, you know, but he was convinced that this is the will of God. For full-time ministry, go to seminary. Well, uh, he spent nine and a half years going into seminary. And his last semester before he graduated, he had an affair on his wife. You know where he is today? Cleaning pools. That is where he is. Holiness, cleanliness, lacking of sin, being aware of what the struggles and the temptations we have in life really, truly does matter because a holy calling requires holy living. If you are cleaning pools here today, okay, uh, be encouraged because we have verse 18 and 19. So you have the bad news of verses 10 through 17, that they're building the holy temple, but their lives don't match. They're tarnishing, contaminating the purity of this holy place. And God has been trying to wake them up, verse 15 through 17, for, for five different things. But then God then gives them some good news. Verse 18, do consider. The word consider means to set your heart. From this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, December 24th and on, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit, yet from this day onward I will bless you. The bad news is, is that they lack holiness. The good news is, is that there is still time. There is still time to repent. The seed is in the barn. The fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, they're all ready to bear fruit. They must repent, must see the sin that is in their life. And the Bible here doesn't really describe what sin it is. You know why it doesn't? Because it probably doesn't really matter. They probably are worshiping other gods, but it doesn't matter. We don't know the exact sin he's referring to here. The message is, is that the holy calling requires holy living. They're not measuring up. Neither all of us do. But then the message is, is when we don't measure up, when we have sin in our life, when we have things that no one knows about in the vaults and the safes of our mind, what is the goal? It's not too late. Repent. I had a preacher say one time that he's known, you know, everybody struggles with sin. Everybody struggles with all sorts of temptation. But the ones that follow God and the ones that bounce back quickest are the ones that repent quickly. The ones that recognize it. And the ones that are willing to repent. This past Wednesday night, I did Psalm 51. And I, if you're not familiar with it, that is a Psalm of David that he pens, I believe, right after, well, it is, right after Nathan confronts him. You are the man, if you remember that story. And I believe he wrote that, Psalm 51, in the seven-day window when the child was born and before that child died. In 2 Samuel chapter 12. And David, in Psalm 51, gives us a model of true repentance. And I shared this this last Wednesday night. First, 
You must acknowledge God, the holiness of God, without a clear understanding of his cleanliness, his purity, his righteousness. There's no reason. There's no need in your mind to apologize, to ask for forgiveness. The, the process of repentance is to acknowledge God's holiness. Number two is to accept responsibility for your sin. That's probably the biggest one. You track with me? How many of you, I mean, my child will go to my seven-year-old and say, I'm sorry. Okay? And what do I always say? For what? Because when they just apologize, when they ask for forgiveness, if they haven't accepted responsibility, it's not true repentance. Acknowledge God. Accept responsibility. Ask God for forgiveness. And then number four is to avert or to change your behavior. That's repentance. God is saying to the nation of Israel, here, I have given you this holy task of building my temple, but you have unclean hands, and you are tarnishing that which is holy. You are ruining, in a sense, the mission that I've given to you, and I've tried to wake you up for six months since the harvest to get you to realize what's going on. You are unholy, but there is still time. Friends, listen to me. There is still time. The scripture says this, seek the Lord while he may be found Call upon him while he is near. Let me just ask you the question. Number one, is there sin in your life? And that's a duh, yes. Um, number two is, what is the mission you have in life? Number three, what are the signs that God is giving you currently to get you to realize the sin and to repent? What's the wheat? What's the wine? What's the blasting wind? What's the mildew? What's the fire and the wind and the hail? I've known a lot of Christians that have, have followed the Lord, have his great calling, great vision, and man, they get to the finish line and then they, and their life just falls apart. I've seen it again and again and again. And the ones that still make a difference for the kingdom of God, they repent quickly. I had a friend in seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, we were in a small group, and he confessed something to the group, and I would have never guessed it. He he said that before he came to seminary that he was a youth pastor and that he was stealing money from his church as a youth pastor. He began to steal money by taking cash out of the offering plate and putting it in his pocket. And then he got more and more complex and started stealing money from the church. And so what did the church do? Church threw his rear end in jail. <laughs> okay. Church threw him right in jail. He was in prison for six months. And... Today, he is a senior pastor of a church in Dallas, Texas. And I look back at his story, and I look at the other story I shared earlier. What's the, what's the difference? What happened between the two of them? Well, one didn't repent, and one repented quickly. I believe the reason why that guy is a senior pastor of a church in Dallas, Texas, despite being a criminal, is because he repented quickly. The question we have to answer is, so what? A holy calling requires holy living. That's kind of the whole idea of this passage. And so what I want to do is I want to conclude just with the synopsis of this book to this point. First is to find your mission. What is God asking you to do? What is God calling you to do? That has been a question I've asked for the last three weeks. What is he asking you to follow him to do? If you don't have an answer to that, then I think the Lord is trying to speak to you. How does God speak to us? He speaks to us through circumstances, His Spirit, through others, and through, most importantly, His Word. What is God asking you to do? I think you probably know, 
But when the Lord asks us to do something, there is a fear that grips your mind and your heart. That's why it's so important to be, number two, courageous. What is God calling to you? Where is he asking you to go? Will you follow him? Will you overcome the opposition when everything falls apart? Will you be courageous to follow him? And then number three, will you fulfill God's mission? Will you worry about the holiness in your life? The uncleanness of your hands? And, you know, this week, constantly, I was saying to the Lord, okay, Lord, what is the sin in my life? And constantly repenting. I mean, I guess the Lord had a message for me because I was preaching on Psalm 51 and then here this morning. Repent while the Lord can be found, while the Lord is near. What is he asking you to do? Will you follow him and will you be holy in your mission? If someone came up to you today after the service and asked you, why should God let you into heaven? How would you respond? I want you to actually answer the question. If God came to you and asked you, or if someone came to you and said, why should, you, why should God let you into heaven? How would you respond? Yeah. Most of us, most people in the world, not most of us, most people in the world say, well, because I'm a good person. <clears throat> Romans 3.23, what? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we cannot be good enough in order to earn our way into heaven. So if there's, any, if there's any reason besides this one that God should let you in, then you are not a Christian. The reason God should let you in, period, is because you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. And that Jesus Christ has come and he has died in your place and he has risen again. And that if you believe in him, you shall be saved. We're saved by grace alone and through faith alone in Christ alone. Period. If you have never taken a moment in your life to ever trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, I can think of no better time to believe in Jesus Christ than if you confess your life Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead, you shall be saved. If you have any questions about how to become a Christian, feel free to see me after this service today. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the message of Haggai chapter 2. And just the practical nature it is, that we all struggle with sin, we all have uncleanliness of our hands. But Lord, may we take comfort in the fact that we can still find you, that we can still come to you, that we can still offer up and confess our sins to you, because they are bought and paid for in full. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Lord, that's what I pray. Lord, I pray that first that my friends in this room would have a vision and a direction that you would have them to go, Lord, that they would, they would have boldness to follow you, but then as they live out this mission, that they would be mindful of the temptation and sin in their life. And that's what I pray. And Lord, pray for those that do not know you as Savior. May the Spirit of God open their eyes to the truth that they need you and that you've come to die for them and that if they believe in you, they shall be saved. Thank you for this church. I thank you for my people. Thank you for just their generosity and the warmth and the love that they show. In Jesus' name, amen.